Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Isn't it good to gather together as the body of Christ, to lift up Christ, to be reminded of who he is and what he has done for us in the gospel? These are sweet moments that the Lord grants to us when we get to gather together as the body of Christ. So let me ask you a question. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Now, for some of you, your minds are racing that you want to be a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, maybe an astronaut or an athlete. Maybe you're thinking, if I could be a, a business leader, maybe even a surgeon or a police officer. Now, for some of you, you're, you're living out your childhood dream. You have your job and something you've always planned. And for some of you, you're doing something completely different than you ever planned that you would do. But needless to say, at some point, you prepared for the job that you have now. You had, a, you had a vision of what your life would look like and this new, new job that you were going to have. But then you had a change. But you realized that you had to begin with the end in mind. Well, this morning, we're going to stop. We're going to take a step back and see the big picture. Not of your job and not of your career, but of your life. This morning, God is calling upon you to live with the end in mind. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going through a sermon series as a church entitled Imperishable, in which we are walking through the book of 1 Peter together. Simon Peter, the author of this letter, is writing to first century believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. They're facing persecution as followers of Jesus, and the, the, the trials that they are enduring are about to get, become more difficult. The fiery trials are about to intensify, and so he's preparing them for suffering and saying, do not back down, do not back away. Jesus is faithful, so you remain faithful to him. And so as the hard times come, do not walk away. Stand firm in the true grace of God. And then in verses 17 and following, Peter calls upon believers to live with the end in mind. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Three times in this letter, Peter refers to his audience as exiles. They are like pilgrims traveling through a foreign land that is not their home. Well, we too, as followers of Jesus, there's a sense in which we are just like these first century believers. We are refugees. We do not have a home in this world, and we long for the world, for the home that is coming. Our citizenship is in heaven with Christ. 
And our final destination is coming. And when it comes, we will sojourn no more. But until that day comes, we are to live with the end in mind. Notice these two truths in the text that we are to remember. Remember first that you will give an account. Verse 17. Peter says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This phrase, and if, is is stating the presumption that you are a believer. So presuming that you are an elect exile, you call upon him as Father, which we should. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said to call upon God as Father. He is our Father in heaven who will, verse 17, one day judge everyone's deeds. Repeatedly throughout the scriptures, God warns people of his coming judgment in which everyone will give an account. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Hebrews 9, 27 says that man is destined to die once, and after this, the judgment. And at this judgment, the Father will judge, verse 17, impartially. The Father is a just judge. He's an impartial judge, and we must all stand before him to give an account. And his judgment will be exact. It will be precise. It will be true. He does not show favoritism based upon wealth or skin color or attractiveness. There's no manipulating the system. You cannot lie or or con or sneak past the Almighty. There's no shifting blame on that day in which you give an account saying, it's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my kids' fault. You can't throw the blame somewhere else. But also, he's not a wayward judge who can be bribed or paid off. When I was 12 years old, I got a really bad report card, and I was fearing the moment of coming home with it. And so as I'm headed home, I'm putting together this plan, and it was ingenious. For every good grade, I would get a quarter from my parents. And for every bad grade, I would pay them a quarter. And I thought, this is perfect. So the time comes, my dad comes home from work, I present to him the report card, explain my plan, give him a buck 50 and start walking out of the room. <laughs> and, then, and then he says, Kenneth, like, like, you know that dad voice, you know what I'm talking about? Kenneth, and he said this, that's not how this works. You see, When we stand before our Father and we give an account, we can't pay Him off. It's like going with a handful of quarters to pay off an infinite debt. It doesn't cover it. It's insufficient. When we come before our Father, He is an impartial judge and we cannot pay our way out of trouble. And at the end of time, when the Lord blows the whistle and the age comes to an end, you will be going one-on-one with God. And he will judge based upon the factual evidence of what is laid out before him, namely your life. 
And as a believer in Jesus, there's coming a day in which you will stand in heaven's courtroom and give an account, verse 17, for every deed. You can imagine a projection screen that replays your life. Every word that you've ever said. Every attitude in your heart. Anything that you have ever done is going to be laid bare before the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. And Peter is telling these believers who are suffering for Jesus, while you are in exile, while you are in this world that is not your home, you are to conduct yourselves with fear. Isn't that an interesting word? It means a reverent fear. It is a terror. We are to fear the sovereign God who rules and reigns over all. He is the one who raises up kings and the one who takes them down. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. He holds the oceans in the palm of his hand. He is the one who rules over the cosmos. He is the one we are to fear. And when you rightly see God for who he is, you fear him. And that fear then motivates holy living. So that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling before the one to whom you must give an account. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, there's coming a day in which every man, woman, boy, and girl throughout all time will stand before him and give an account for every word, every action, every motivation of the heart, every curse word spoken at the ball field, every racist comment that has been uttered out of your lips. Every lie, every word of gossip or slander, every text message you have written, every comment on social media, every snide remark you have made sitting in traffic on I-65, it's coming back up. Every person that you've ever used for personal gain, everything you've done in the cover of night, everything you've done in the open of day, how you treated people above you on the company org chart, and how you treated people below you on the company org chart. You see, it's all coming back up. How you spend your time how you spent every dollar, how you steward your body, it's coming back up. Men, God's going to hold us accountable for how we have loved and led our wives and our children. How have you loved and cared for them? How have you loved and served the bride of Christ, his church? Wives, how are you doing when it comes to loving and submitting to the leadership of your husband? In leading and loving your children and in serving Jesus' church? children. You're going to be held accountable for how you honor your father and your mother and for how you led and cared for your siblings and how you loved and served the church. You see, this is a sobering truth. But God is so gracious to us. He's telling us what's going to happen when we take our last breath. 
He's given you a heads up saying, I want you to know what's coming. And for those who are in Christ, we are to live with the end in mind. The judgment is coming and we will give an account for everything we do. And the bad news for those who do not believe the gospel, for those who reject the free gift of God's mercy through Jesus Christ, this is a terrible day. You see, outside of Christ, you alone will have to pay for your sin forever in hell. But God doesn't want that. He's provided a way out. So if you would turn from your sin and believe upon Jesus, hear me today, you can be saved. You see, you fear God now or you will be in fear forever. So this morning, come to Christ. Believe upon Jesus. If you're watching online right now where you are, turn from your sin and believe the gospel. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Motivated by love, he went to the cross, paid for your sin in full, so that those who trust in him will be saved on that last day. You see, that's the good news. Believing upon Jesus means that the judgment in which we give an account doesn't have to be a bad day. How is that possible? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believing the gospel means that on that last day, you don't have to worry about your future. It's immediate, instant heaven for those who have believed the gospel. And yet for those who have believed the gospel, we are going to give an account for what we did with Jesus. How did we live our lives? You see, the way you live your life matters. It matters. You're going to give an account before the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, we are to live in the fear. We are to walk out in fear as followers of Jesus, we seek to obey the Lord. And we fear God because we know what he could do to us and be justified in doing so if it were not for Jesus. But Jesus, the sinless Son of God, goes to the cross and absorbs the wrath that we deserve. As our substitute, he took our place so that we don't have to. Now, moving forward, after believing the gospel, we conduct ourselves with fear before the one to whom we must give an account. But hear me today. If you live with the end in mind, the day you stand before the Lord does not have to be a day of dread. It does not have to be a day of drudgery. Well, Kenneth, what are you talking about? Paul says it like this in Romans 2. God will render to each one according to his works, watch this, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You see, gospel-motivated obedience means that you don't have to be afraid of this day. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's a day that you can look forward to. It's a day in which you receive a reward for being faithful. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Don't miss this. God will always reward the faithfulness of his people. 
And on this day, when you give an account, if you are living with the end in mind, making much of Jesus, celebrating him, living for him, abiding in him, telling people about him, that's a good day. It's a day in which the Lord will reward your faithfulness. So Kenneth, since I'm now under grace as a believer in Jesus, does that mean I can now go live however I want to? Oh, well, if, if sin increases in my life, I know his grace abounds all the more. So I'm now free to go live however I want to, right? Wrong. Listen to the Apostle Paul's in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? To, listen to this, to willfully sin after believing upon the gospel is to spit upon the work of Jesus at the cross. You see, your life matters. The way you live your life, the words that you say, the actions that you do, the posture of your heart, it matters. And we're going to give an account. And, and for us to willfully sin after believing upon Jesus is Hebrews 10.29, trampling on the Son of God underfoot. You see, to go back to your old way of life once you have realized the work of Jesus on your behalf, it's an act of treason. And God is saying, don't go back. Don't go back to the old sin. Don't turn back to slavery. Come and live in the freedom that I've provided you through my son, Jesus. May it not be said of us as followers of Jesus, as the body of Westwood, as those who are called to live holy lives, that we are those who go back to the sin that we once forsook. You see, our Father loves us, and we will give an account you see, up to this point, Peter has outlined all that God has done for us in the gospel. That God, verse 1, has chosen us. He's been merciful to us, verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, verse 3. God has an imperishable inheritance for us, verse 4. God's power is guarding our faith, verse 5. God has given us love and inexpressible joy, verse 8. God has given us eternal security, verse 9. God has given us prophets and apostles who point us to Jesus, verses 10 through 12. 12, therefore, conduct yourselves with fear. Remember, God is after holy conduct. After all that God has done for us, he's saying, listen, throughout the first 16 verses, God has displayed his kindness to us in Jesus. So now we go and we live out in fear, in awe of who he is and what he has done. Let me talk to the dads for a minute. To the dads in this room, you are a visible representative of the Heavenly Father to your family. And so my question is, are you overwhelming your family with a love that is permanent and good? And at the same time, are you holding your children and grandchildren accountable for their lives? You see, both are true simultaneously. We are to love our children well, just as the Father loves his children. And we are to hold our children accountable for their lives, just as God will hold us accountable. In fact, when you hold your kids accountable for their bad and good decisions, that's actually a mark of love. 
It's I want to invite you dads to lead well in reflecting the work of God the Father by displaying it before your family. You see, there are two days that you are to prepare your children for. Judgment day and their wedding day. Those are the two days you want to prepare your kids for. Now, one is far more important than the other. You want to prepare your kids to meet Jesus. That's far more important than the wedding day. However, if you do well in preparing your children for judgment day, the wedding day is probably going to go a lot better than you planned. But you've got to be raising up your kids, raising up your grandkids to love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ to get them ready for that day in which they stand before the Lord and give an account. You live with the end in mind. And remember, you will give an account. Number two, remember that you were ransomed with blood. Verse 18 Simon Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, here Peter is connecting our holy living and, and conducting yourself with fear, verses 15 through 17, to the cross of Jesus Christ. He writes, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. You see, these two truths are in play here. Simultaneously, as we conduct ourselves with fear, we can also have confidence in our standing before God. Well, Kenneth, how is that possible? Verse 18, God ransomed you. The word ransom, it means to redeem, to buy back, to restore to its rightful owner. In the year 1193, the English king Richard I was captured in Austria. The emperor there demanded a ransom for the king's return. That ransom? Three tons of silver. The people of England loved their king so much that they gladly gave extra taxes and the nobles donated their fortunes to buy back their king. And after many months, the money was raised, and King Richard was returned to England. And that's how we got the expression, a king's ransom. Well, y'all, we are just like that king. Because of the sin of our first parents in the garden, that sin that was passed down to us through our forefathers, it had made us separate from God. We became spiritually abducted from our spiritual relationship with God. You see, before you knew Jesus, the devil held you in captivity. You were unable to set yourself free. You were powerless and hopeless on your own. You needed someone to come and set you free. Someone had to buy you back from the enemy. And since the wages of sin is death, someone had to die to set you free. Only death could buy you back from your captivity. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, who came to do one thing. Jesus died on the cross to pay your ransom. Jesus delivered you, he rescued you, he ransomed you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into his own kingdom. And he bought you not with perishable things like 
gold or silver. No, no, no. The most valuable metals in the world are too cheap for such a high price as your soul. So God gave something far more valuable than precious gold or silver. He gave the precious blood of his own son. You were ransomed by Jesus, the one who, verse 20, was the one who is God's chosen plan from before the creation of the world. That long before Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, God's rescue plan was already established, and that plan had a name, and his name is Jesus. He is the one, verse 20, who was made manifest. He was revealed. He was God come in the flesh, born in Bethlehem, crucified at Golgotha. And verse 21, raised on the third day. And he did all of this, verse 20, for your sake. So now, through Jesus, the ransom of God, you have faith and you have hope in God. You see, that's what Jesus came to do, to be a ransom for you. That's why he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, what? Ransom for many. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, There is one God and one, I had it memorized and I forgot it. Where did it go? There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And yet notice in the text what you were ransomed from. Verse 18, futile ways. Quite literally means a useless and empty life. You see, the unredeemed life is empty. It's it's meaningless. The drunk keeps going back to the bottle because it cannot quench his thirst. The addict keeps going back to the drug because it cannot satisfy or gratify his greatest craving. The fool keeps going back to porn because it cannot satisfy the greatest desire of his heart. And such were some of you. Outside of knowing Jesus, and your life was empty. You were lost and in the dark. And you hear it all the time in people's stories and testimonies about their life. Before you come to know Jesus, it's like, man, I was lost. I was empty. I had nothing inside. 15th century philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said it like this. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because God did not create you to find satisfaction in anything in this world. Not in your spouse, not in your job, not in your income, not in your house or your cars, your 401k. All of it is meaningless compared to knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. But when you know Jesus, you know exactly why you were created. For some of you in this room, or maybe those of you watching online, you're saying, I'm not sure if I can move forward. I'm having a hard time. Life is hard enough. What's the point? What's the meaning of this life? And here it is. Your life is not about you. Your life is about Jesus Christ. God made you to know his son. 
And by believing upon Jesus, you no longer have a futile life. You no longer have a meaningless life. God provides for you purpose for why you exist and how you can move forward. You can laugh at the days to come, afraid of nothing, because you know the one who holds the future. You no longer have to wring your hands in anxiety or worry about what's going to come because your faith and trust is in the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. You don't have to be afraid. God gives you purpose and meaning for this life based upon what Jesus has done for you in the gospel. And so Peter is reminding these first century believers and he is reminding you today that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. And your purpose for living is not found in yourself. It's found in knowing someone else and his name is Jesus. You see, for some of you here today, your way forward is by looking backward. You see, before you can go forward, you need to look backward to the cross of Christ. You need to be reminded of what God did to purchase you for himself. And this morning, he is pointing you to a blood-stained cross. Jesus, the spotless sinless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has made a way for you to go forward through his bloody sacrificial death on the cross. 17,155. Presuming I keep up with the life expectancy within my family, that is how many days I have left until I go home to be with Jesus. Now ultimately we know that God is the one who decides when we take our last breath. So he is sovereign over that. But I've only got a little bit of time left. What about you? How much time do you have left until you stand before the Lord and you give an account? Well this morning I want to remind you that not only are you going to give an account, but you have been ransomed with blood. And so on that day, when you take your last breath and you are with Jesus, that can be a very good day because you lived your life with the end in mind.